Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. And I'd like to thank you as a church family. I felt very loved as been recuperating from my knee surgery and it was so fun. I have another one planned for July 20th. But uh, but the church family, that's what church is about, to encourage one another. And Irene and I were just amazed at the prayers and cards and meals, all the different things that people did. Thank you so much. Before we begin, as we uh, celebrate Memorial Day weekend, celebrate those who gave their lives for the freedoms that we have. So we've watched what has taken place over the last few weeks, obviously this week in Texas, Robb Elementary School there, and what took place in Buffalo not too long ago, a week, a little over a week ago. We uh, need to be reminded that God is our hope and he is our strength. And so as we begin this morning, I'd like us to pray, pray for those people in Uvalde, Texas, also the people in Buffalo and, and others who are facing incredibly difficult times. So let's pray and ask for God's grace, comfort, and strength. Father, as we come before you, may we recognize that you are our only hope. As we just sang, we love you because you are our one defense, our righteousness. Lord, we pray for those people in Uvalde, Texas. Lord, families who have lost children, other teachers that were killed. Lord, we know that we live in a sinful world. Lord, we pray that even in this incredible tragedy that people would see your grace and your comfort and the hope that can be found in you. Lord, in Buffalo, a couple weeks ago, what took place there. Lord, in, in other places, other events, as we continue to pray for what's going on in Ukraine, Lord, help us just to look to you alone, recognizing you are our only hope and you are our great strength. As we look at your word this morning, may we be challenged in our response to you. May we be encouraged in your faithfulness toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, I've, for years, I've had a friend who uh, loved short sayings, proverb-type sayings, and it seemed like whatever a situation, he always had a saying for it. And uh, one of the sayings that he shared, one of my favorites, stuck in my mind. I heard it first from him years and years ago, but is this, you can be a dove in a snowstorm, and someone will still mistake you for a blackbird. Some of you will get that a little later on today. But as we continue in 1 Peter, we see that Peter dealt with that issue. The question is this. What do you do when you're persecuted for doing good? Or what happens when your good meets hostility? 
What happens when you have a bad response to your good deeds? Peter talks about that, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, it says this, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter was writing as we've been going through 1 Peter, recognize he's writing to a group of people who were facing increased persecution for their faith. They were living in the Roman Empire. An empire that was anti-God and, and many wanted to, to get rid of this group of people, these Christians, little Christs, these Christ followers. And they were facing incredible persecution. Now while we may not have the level of persecution that they faced, we need to recognize that Jesus told us that we may face persecution. We may struggle with attempting to do good and having that good challenged or responded to with hostility. So Peter lays out several things that we need to recognize, things that we need to do, part of the character of our life that will help us as we respond to possible hostility in our desire to honor Christ in the way we live. And it begins in verse 13 with simply recognizing that we need to have a passion for goodness. Verse 13 says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? He begins with a rhetorical question. Normally you will not be persecuted or hurt for doing what's good. You're a good neighbor. You reach out and, and you help a neighbor as, as a Christ follower, demonstrating the love of Christ, giving your time toward a neighbor and maybe a project they have. Usually they're not going to respond with hostility. They'll respond with appreciation. Or in the workplace, you're a hard worker. You help those workmates around you. You, you probably won't have hostility as a response to your hard work and helpfulness and unselfishness in the workplace. Most people will appreciate it when good deeds are done. Now, if you're not doing what is good, this passage doesn't apply, but as followers of Christ, we are to be known for our generosity, for our kindness, for our unselfishness. Many of the benevolent organization in the world have Christian roots. 
groups like Salvation Army, Samaritan's Purse, the list can go on and on, both international, national, and local organizations. Many have Christian roots in the desire to, to reach out to our community and our world and share the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do as His followers. Many of the changes in culture throughout history have taken place as Christians stand for what is good. If you go back to the, to the time of abolishing slavery, both in England and in the United States, it was many Christian groups that were part of leading that charge to get rid of that horrible idea of slavery. That and many other horrible things in our culture. As Christians strive to treat others with respect and dignity. And as we realize that, that all people are created in the image of God, that all people are precious to Him. As Christians, we should be in the forefront of doing good. And most often as we do that, people will respond with appreciation. But Peter doesn't stop there in verse 13. He goes on to verse 14, and we can recognize that there may be times when we suffer. Even suffer for doing good. Verse 14 says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. When we demonstrate goodness, most likely we'll be appreciated for our actions. However, that's not always the case. The phrase, even if, as we begin verse 14, shows that our good deeds may be responded to with hostility rather than appreciation. We may suffer as a result of our godly life. And Peter says there in verse 14 that if we suffer for righteousness sake, we're blessed. Now I don't know about you, but when I first think of that, that's pretty hard to swallow. What's Peter saying? Well, he says something very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. We call it the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He lists these different attitudes that we're to have. These attitudes that are to characterize our life. And in, in verses 10 through 12 of, of Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness. Is Jesus telling us that we should appreciate false accusations? You're in the workplace, you're, you're working diligently, and you're standing for truth graciously, and, and somebody decides that they're going to strive to make your life miserable because you're a Christ follower, and so they give false accusations, they, make, they, they do everything they can to make your life miserable. Are we supposed to say, oh boy, I hope they really mess up my life today? 
That's not what he's saying. He's referring to our motive. It's an honor to stand with Christ, to represent Christ, to glorify Him in our actions. We don't glory in the pain. We don't desire to have horrible things take place. But we're honored for the chance, the opportunity to stand for Christ no matter what the circumstances. In John chapter 15, a pretty familiar passage begins with Jesus calling us the branches and Himself the vine. But it, it, it begins the chapter with that picturing that we're connected in Christ. But then He goes on in that chapter and, and talks to the disciples and, and ultimately to us through Scripture to say, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be persecuted. And he says, the world will hate you because it hates me. When we stand for and represent and illuminate the light, there may be some kickback. We don't look forward to the persecution. We don't seek out the persecution. But we rejoice in the opportunity to do right even when we're persecuted. And so Peter is saying, yes, do good. We can be thankful when our good deeds are demonstrating Christ's love to the world around us is, is responded to by appreciation and sincere thanks. But that's not the reason we do it for the accolades of others. We do it because we represent Christ. And there will be times when we face kickback, when we face persecution for our godly actions. And then he goes on in verse 15 and he, and he shares a way that can provide the ability to face persecution. A focus on Jesus Christ. That's where our eyes need to be focused. Verse 15 says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Rather than fearing the threats and being troubled by what people may do, we must focus on Christ. Now these verses, verses 14 and 15... Take us back to Isaiah chapter 8. And in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah the prophet is challenging this guy named King Ahaz, who was a king of Judah. And King Ahaz was facing a, a very difficult dilemma. He was being attacked. And he was fearful that, that Judah, the southern part of Israel where he was king, that they were going to be defeated. And he was trying to figure out, what are we going to do to protect ourselves? And instead of looking to Christ or looking to God and trusting God for his strength, he sought out the help of a people called the Assyrians. 
Now the Assyrians were the world power at the time, and so he had to give up some things, and, and they began to worship some of the Assyrian gods, and they paid tribute to Assyria, so Assyria would help them out as they faced this attack from some enemies. And in verse 12 of Isaiah 8, we see the words that are quoted in the end of verse 14 of 1 Peter 3. In Isaiah 8, just as Peter in 1 Peter 3 challenged the people and challenged Isaiah, challenged Ahaz to not be troubled or fearful of the people around them. And then he goes on in verse 13 of Isaiah 8. And Isaiah gives this promise that, that while not quoting, Peter pictures or paraphrases in verse 15. In Isaiah 8:13, it says, "The Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow or revere. Him you shall let him be your fear, let him be your dread. He is the one you should look to. And Peter challenges us to that in 1 Peter 3.15. Don't allow the people around you to cause you to fear. Rather, trust in Christ and Christ alone. And he he begins verse 15 by saying, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify means to set apart. The idea of making Him your only One that you obey and trust and follow. He is the ultimate. He is to be God and God alone in your life. If you go on in Isaiah chapter 8, you see the foolishness of Ahaz. Isaiah goes on after he challenged Ahaz to have to honor, fear, and trust God. Verse 14 of Isaiah 8, Isaiah says, He, God, will be as a sanctuary, a protected place. But, because here's what Ahaz did. Ahaz trusted the Assyrians rather than God. But, This promise and warning will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel who looked for strength to the peoples around them rather than to God. To both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Ahaz was a king who failed miserably in leading the people of Israel, of Judah, the southern portion of Israel, because he chose to trust the Assyrians rather than to trust God. There's a book, and and I read it a while back, and I I saw it on the shelf. I was going to read it this week. I didn't get to it, but it's a, I love the title. It's by a guy named, I can't remember his first name, Welch is his last name, and it says, When People Are Big and God is Small. Oftentimes, we're like that in our lives, aren't we? Think about David as he faced Goliath. And here was the the trained and equipped 
army of Israel who had over and over seen the power of God, but one man, Goliath, comes up and defies God and sneers at them and challenges them. And what do they do? They cower in fear. And it takes a young boy, David, to stand up and to say, listen, this guy is standing against the armies of the living God. While the rest of them couldn't see God because of the shadow of Goliath, David didn't notice the size of Goliath because he recognized the power of God. And as you look at the nation of Israel through the Old Testament, and you see as they more and more rejected Christ and, and rejected God, we see a sad ending to their story. But in the midst of those sad portions, we see some glimmers of light. And one was a guy named Jehoshaphat. He was another king of Judah. But he had a different response to adversity than Ahaz. You see, Jehoshaphat knew when times were hard, when, when, when struggles came, he knew where to look. And an amazing story is told in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You see, there were, there were three very powerful nations around Judah... And not just one, not just two, but all three of them decided to attack. And they said, let's make an alliance and attack together. Any one of them, if you looked at it from a purely human military standpoint, would be expected to wipe out Judah. But now all three of them joined together. And so in the beginning of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, some people, some messengers come to Jehoshaphat and they say, Jehoshaphat, it's not good. All these three nations are gathering together and they're coming to wipe us out. And what was Jehoshaphat's response? It says he gathered the people together and they stood before God and Jehoshaphat prayed. And his prayer is found in verses 5 through 12 of 2 Chronicles 20. And it's a fascinating prayer. Because he goes before God and he reminds God of God's faithfulness to them throughout their history. Now, God didn't need a reminder. But Jehoshaphat said, yes, God, we remember when you did this. We remember when you, you went to our father Abraham and how you gave us this incredible land. And just a reminder of the faithfulness of God over the history of their lives, over the history over their nation. And, and he does that, and then he comes to verse 12. And I want you just to listen carefully to the conclusion of his prayer in 2 Chronicles 20, 12. It says, O Lord our God, he'd been sharing all the amazing things that God had done. 
O Lord our God, will you not judge them, these nations that are coming against us? These nations who are attacking your people? Will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. What a powerful, powerful statement. God, we look at this multitude that's coming against us. We don't have a clue. But God, we know we can look to you. And if you read the rest of 2 Chronicles 20, God gives them things to do. Gather the people together, gather the soldiers together, and go out and stand before the enemy. And God said, as you stand before the enemy, I will deliver you. So they go out, obey God in the simple task of standing up, And God causes those three nations to begin to fight amongst themselves and they wipe each other out. And the only thing that the nation of Israel does is they stand together and then they sing worship songs as they saw the power of God. You may be here this morning and you're facing an obstacle like Ahaz or Jehoshaphat. The question is not, will we have obstacles? The question is, how do we respond when the obstacles are there? Like Ahaz, I'm going to try to figure out my own plan. Or like Jehoshaphat, God, I have no clue, but my eyes are on you. And then... Watch God work. Sanctify. To set apart. Christ is to be the object of our love, our loyalty, and our obedience. And then he says, so we set apart God or sanctify God in our hearts and be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us. We're to give a defense of the hope that we have in Christ. As we live life, as we face adversity, we're called to share Christ with a world that needs Him. Maybe we're being persecuted for doing right, and others in the workplace, if it's in the workplace, others are watching what's taking place, and they're amazed at our willingness to respond to evil with good. People around us are wondering, How can you respond in that way? We share the hope that we have in Christ. And you say, but what happens if they ask me some questions, some biblical questions that I can't answer? You know, one of the most powerful testimonies of God's power is to simply share what He's doing in your life. Because God is in the business of changing people and providing hope. 
be prepared to give, in a defense, to give a defense. That word defense is the word where we get apologetics. It's a courtroom term, the idea of a defense of our position. It's not an apology. I'm sorry I'm a Christ follower. It's a defense of who we are and what we have in Christ. But he says to give it in meekness and in fear. The New International Version translated it, translates it gentleness and respect. We have to understand that our goal is not to win an argument, but to share the hope of salvation. But are we, depar- are we prepared to give a defense? Are we prepared to share the hope that we have in Christ? And then Peter closes this section with another characteristic, another principle required in order to have a proper response when our good deeds are demonstrating Christ's love is responded to with hostility. And that's that we have a good or a pure conscience. Verses 16 and 17. How can I stand and and do right even when I'm persecuted for showing God's love? Well, we were to have a pure conscience. Verses 16 and 17, it says this, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, though they revile your good conduct in Christ, that those who revile... Uh, revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What does a good or a pure conscience do? It will allow us to stand firm and to make an impact. I know that no matter the response, I am going to do what is right. A pure conscience gives us the courage when we do right. Martin Luther was chastised and punished for standing for God's word. And in April, on April 18th, 1521, he stood before the church council who had falsely accused and persecuted him. And as he was defending his faith, this is what he said. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. My conscience won't allow me to to step back from doing right, from doing good, from doing what God has called me to do. No matter what you do to me, I will continue to do what God's word says. I can do no other. Why? Because my conscience reminds me and challenges me to do right and gives me the courage when I do that. But also, a pure conscience gives us peace. You see, when we choose to do right, no matter the consequences, we can have the peace that only God can give. A pure conscience removes fear of what others may think, what they may say, or what they may do. Now I want you to think about Peter in that statement. 
as he talks there in verses 16 and 17 about having a pure conscience, I'm sure his mind had to go back to that night as he sat by that fire as his Savior was being falsely accused and tried and convicted. And would that next day be crucified? And as he sat around that fire and that servant girl and then two others said, you were with him. You were one of his disciples. And Peter's response, I never knew the man. And then the rooster crowed and Peter wept. But now Peter's life is much different than it was then. Because we find that shortly after this, Peter would give his life for his Savior. Why? Because he recognized that trusting and following Christ was so much better than fearing others. And with a pure conscience, he could say, I am going to do right. I am going to demonstrate Christ's love. I am going to stand for God's truth. And I will fear not what men may do, but I will honor God as I share his love. So we're challenged to do it. The psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We're called to do good. Most often, our good will be appreciated. However, if it's not, if we face persecution, we must be ready to stand firm, show love, and share our faith as we follow God. The thing that Peter and many of those people that were the original readers of this letter were called upon to do, but also what we're called upon to do, to stand firm, to love others, to share our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that as Almighty God, you care about us. And Lord, you are faithful. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to be prepared with a defense of the hope that is in us. Help us to follow you with a pure conscience, doing right, loving others, representing you. We thank you for your blessing and your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.